Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. According to researchers at the University of Chicago, a predictive crime algorithm now exists. They claim it can predict future crimes one week in advance with an accuracy of 90%. As a friend of mine pointed out, the predictability of today's humans certainly helps. Now, if any of this reminds you of the 2002 film Minority Report, keep in mind that that movie is set in the year 2054. However, here in 2022, we are already burdened with much of the so-called predictive technology featured in the film. For example, personalized advertisements, facial and optical recognition, voice-controlled homes, driverless cars, and yes, pre-crime predicting. Do you feel safe yet? My guest this episode is Nick Corbishley, author of a new book called Scanned, Why Vaccine Passports and Digital IDs Will Mean the End of Privacy and Personal Freedom, published by Chelsea Green Publishing. Check the show notes for information on how to order this essential publication. Now, before I bring Nick on to chat, I wanted to share something from the ending part of Scanned. Um, Nick begins to talk about the plans and protocols being imposed upon us by the powers that shouldn't be, for example, the World Economic Forum. Nick writes, for the vast majority of the world's population, this deal does not offer any real benefits, just drawbacks, privations, and punishments, which is probably why we are not being consulted on or even informed of its terms and conditions. Yet the governments of ostensibly democratic nations still need the tacit consent of the majority, even as they try to snuff out what remains of our basic rights and freedoms. Before it is too late, which will be sooner rather than later, we need to ask ourselves one simple question. Where is my red line? For many people, their red line is the mass vaccination of healthy children who are at less risk from the virus than adults and whose young bodies will needlessly be exposed to the risk of the as yet unknown long-term side effects of the vaccines. Where is yours? Forced vaccination? A booster shot every two or three months? Unfettered surveillance? Indefinite detention for those who disobey? Total censorship of social media? Digital checkpoints everywhere you go? all for upholding the use of leaky vaccines that don't even protect against the transmission of the Delta variant and which appear to be even leakier against Omicron. Wherever your red line may be, the chances are that by the time it is crossed, it will already be too late to mount a resistance. Day by day, hour by hour, the digital control grid is tightening around us while our democratically elected governments are carrying out a wholesale bonfire of our basic rights and freedoms. But there is still a brief window of time in which the populations of the world's liberal democracies, vaccinated and unvaccinated, can unite to stop this madness from becoming permanent, turn back the clock, 
and reclaim agency over our lives. Enough is enough. I will be right back with Nick Corbishley. And I'm here with Nick Corbishley. Nick, welcome to Post Woke. Thank you for having me, Mick. It's a pleasure to be with you. I appreciate you being here. Um, before you and I jump into our conversation, could you just take a, a minute or so just to let us know what you think we know, need to know about you before this, uh, this interview happens? Okay. Um, well, I am a, um, a journalist who specializes in Europe and Latin America, mainly focusing on economic, financial, and geopolitical trends and developments. Um, I wrote a book last year, early this year, that got published in March this year called um, Scanned Why Vaccine Passports and Digital ID Will Mean the End of Privacy and Personal Freedom. Um, it's a book that has been on sale for about three and a bit months. Um, it's being translated into German and Bulgarian, which is nice. Which is definitely a target. It's <laughs> definitely a target country for me, uh, target market. So, um, and I mean, basically, my my life has kind of been turned upside down over the course of the pandemic, like so many people's has, uh, so many people's lives have, and it's uh, it's been it's been a bumpy ride all this way, and I'm very much concerned about the direction of travel when it comes to um, vaccine passports, when it comes to digital identity, and also central bank digital currencies and where they could be taking us. Absolutely. I share your concern. And for the record, uh, I invite listeners to look at the show notes. There'll be a bio in there and also links to how to order your book, because in our limited amount of time, we can't possibly cover all the information you offer. And this is essential reading. Um, so just to, just to give you some room to go here, in your book, you talk about so much information and there's ways that you tie together um, the World Economic Forum and the Young Global Leaders Program, biometrics, social credit system, the blurring of lines between governments and corporations, QR codes, which makes for an excellent cover to your book. And it kind of adds up to what um, could be called a global biosecurity state. So what could you tell us about how you gathered these pieces and how, and then how you put them together into to fit into a puzzle well that's a good question i mean like basically if i go back a little bit of time i mean i started writing about vaccine passports um around about march 2021 when uh the israeli green pass system had been active for about two or three weeks and we were beginning to see here in Europe that the vaccine, a similar system was on its way and strangely enough it, it, it adopted exactly the same name, imagine that. Two, <laughs> what a coincidence. Two systems. <laughs> the first two, you could argue the first two vaccine passport systems in the Western world and they both shared the same name. I mean, it's a, at the very least it's a lack of originality. Um, on the part of our governors. And I think that very early on, I began to see very dark um, elements to what was happening in Israel. I mean, it wasn't being reported in any of the media, whether outside Israel or what, but I mean, like through following certain people on social media, it, it was becoming very clear that this was being used to 
discriminate. It was being used to um, to push very um, large minority groups out of the um, which we say the, the social um, the, the ability to to participate in society mm. um, and and this was clearly a a consequence of the vaccine passport system whether you could say it was intended or intended I would certainly say it was intended um, and and once I started writing about this, um, some of my articles came to the attention of a publisher in the United States called Chelsea Green, and they're based in Vermont. And they they came to me and said, look, would you like to expand with your writing in these articles into a short book, um, which was kind of meant as a warning because nobody's writing about it, at least in, in, in a book format. Nobody had published a book about this topic. Um, and I had only about three and a half, four months to write the book. Wow. Which meant I had to kind of bring together, bring together loads of stuff that I had had researched, but also having to research at the same time as I was writing the book. And the world was changing all the time while I was writing it. So, I mean, like when I started writing the book, um, it was in kind of like mid-September after I just had COVID myself. And that was when Delta was kind of like yes. dominating the airwaves. And by the time I finished it, Omicron was um, was the dominant uh, variant. And, and the, the vaccines themselves had been shown to be totally uh, useless in terms of at least preventing transmission Indeed. of the virus um so i mean like when i was writing it was it was interesting to see this play out when i was right when i started writing it it was extremely controversial to even suggest that the vaccines were not doing their job because i would say around about june july we began seeing um very clear um evidence coming out of Israel, but that was not reaching most people, at least in Europe, and I think quite a few people in the US. By the time I finished it, most people were suddenly beginning to accept the fact these vaccines are not containing yeah. the virus. Um, so it was interesting to see that develop. But, but And by the time I finished the book, um, the UK had already begun to kind of take a big step back um, in its use of vaccine passports, it was the first country to do that. So it was, it was, it was a very, very intense experience writing this book and trying to pull together all these strands because the book is is only partly about the experience of COVID nineteen and the vaccine passports. It's also about the massively um, accelerating use of digital identities around the world. And one of the basic premises of the book is that the vaccine passports were a gateway to digital identity. It was a way of making this, these kinds of system uh, an accepted uh, reality among people, the general populations of, I would say, the Western liberal democracies. Yes, it, it's it's like, they created this fear matrix and then had the perfect rationale, so to speak, um, to then impose what they saw 
all along pr prior to COVID as the solutions and the directions they wanted to go. And it's interesting. I want to quickly backtrack. Thank you for explaining how the the process of writing the book because um, it's it's you said nobody's really writing books, and that's fascinating because most people, unfortunately, are getting information from social media, which isn't vetted, which isn't fact checked, and we we are regardless of which quote unquote side you're on, you really need to get this information. And that's why I urge people to check out the book because you this type of information isn't accessible through a meme or a post that may or may not um, be true. You're, you're coming to this as a journalist and that's what impressed me about the, the, the book so much. And so I, I'd like you to then just continue into sense of like, of how these powers that shouldn't be are exploiting this crisis to like to put to put into place a program that they've had in mind for a long time. Well, yeah, I think that it's very important that people realize that um, many of the kind of what we call global or maybe globalist institutions that have been leading the way in the kind of um, the vaccine passport. In, in pushing the vaccine passport systems and also the vaccines themselves, these institutes, um, such as the World Economic Forum, um, such as uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, such as even all companies like MasterCard um, and Accenture, um, so I mean the consultancy, the technology consultancy firm, I mean like these organizations have been talking about digital identity, for almost going on a decade and the um, and that kind of like that conversation began to gain more and more momentum um in the three or four years leading into the um the pandemic so so i mean an organization that i i mentioned in my book i cover in my book um is id 2020 the id 2020 alliance uh which most people will never have heard of before because I had never heard of it when I started doing the research for the book. And I was pretty shocked when I started looking into it. I mean, this is an organization that, despite its name, was set up in 2016. Um, and it was set up with seed money from um, Microsoft, Accenture, uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, Cisco, and the Gavi Vaccine Alliance. So that's going back to 2016. Um, and its kind of overarching goal was to enable access to digital identity for everyone on the planet by 2030. Whether we want it or not, this was its founding mission, um, to provide digital identity for everyone on the planet. And and again, you look at all these organizations and you see that they're all, a lot of them have the same backers, the same funders, whether it's the Rockefeller yeah. Foundation, yep. whether it's um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or Gavi, which itself is largely funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, or whether it's Microsoft, which is the company whose profits have helped to kind of like generate, you know, the, the creation of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It's like, you know, it's many of the same organizations. MasterCard is often involved in many of these projects. And ID 2020, going back, I think it was to 2018, they 
um, published a, an article which was about how um, the um, vaccine, what we say vaccine credentials or um, inoculation certificates, I think that's the term I use, inoculation certificates could be used as a driving force for the the rollout of digital identity. And it was really interesting, this article, because um, at no point was it really kind of like framed in the way you might think it would be framed in the idea that um, digital identity might be a useful tool for health crises um, or, you know, kind of like, you know, trying to keep pandemics under control. It was how health crises can be used as a launch pad hmm. for digital identity. And this, I mean, the goal is digital identity as far as this organization is concerned. And at the same time as this is kind of like happening, so, so this is, I would say, largely the target of many of these organizations is kind of like the um, advanced um, liberal democracies, which are kind of like the hardest markets to penetrate with digital identity because of the challenges they pose, the threats they pose to um, basic kind of like um, democratic norms and values. So it's much harder to kind of impose these systems in a country like the US or in a country like the UK that has uh, that have hundreds of years of democratic um, history behind them um, than it is, for example, in a, in a country that's already semi-authoritarian or whose democratic, the, whose roots of the democratic system are very, very fragile and very, very shallow. Um, so, but at the same time that these organizations have been moving and shaking over the last uh, four, five, six years, we have the World Bank um, launching and pushing this um, ID for development program in dozens of kind of like poorer emerging economies, mainly in Africa, but also in Asia and also in Latin America. So, so at the same time, though, you know, the focus in the book is largely on that, on kind of like what's happening in um, places like Europe, United States, Canada, Australia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. At the same time as this is happening, we are seeing um, these kind of ID systems being set up with World Bank money and also with money provided by um, uh, the British government, strange enough, and mm. the French government, strange enough. So the two main colonial powers in Africa of the 19th century and early 20th century are basically helping to fund the World Bank system to create um, digital identity programs in countries, many of which um, have very authoritarian governments and wow. serious human rights abuses. So you're creating systems that are providing governments with far greater ability to control and survey their populations. And that is all coming from Western money. MasterCard is also involved in this. Wow. So, so the, the classic blueprint of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, even, even going back, anything post-World War II, of, of this kind of invisible colonialism or imperialism where they said, hey, we'll, we'll um, 
give you loans and help you build up whatever what might be in your country and in return you do X. Perhaps in the past it was put in factories, uh, Nike factories or something like that. But now it's like we want you to install these digital ID systems, almost like that they're the training grounds to see how it works out in in the on the continent of Africa and work out the kinks before, exactly. before we bring it to the, the liberal democracies of the West. Yes. And, and the same thing is happening with central bank digital currencies. They are being kind of like um, piloted in countries like for example nigeria nigeria is that that was the first large country on the planet to launch a central bank digital currency because for the moment um china is has launched its digital yuan but it's kind of like it's still only being used in i think it's like 20 cities whereas the um the government of nigeria i think last year late last year it launched its um, its digital currency, and and yes, it, it's a testing ground. It has been for the last ten to fifteen years, and especially when it comes to cashless technologies. And so we're we're often talk, we often talk about you know countries like Sweden and um, the UK as being kind of like you know the the the, the countries that are leading the way in the cashless. Sphere, but I mean, like many of the technologies were first kind of like piloted in African countries where um, many people are unbanked and where the mobile mobile phone technologies have become so important because most people don't have a landline at home, they don't have um, broadband at home, but what they do have is they have mobile phone that is, uh, or smartphones that are connected to the internet. And through those smartphones, they've started to, you know, they've been using for many years, um, digital payment systems. Uh, wow. they're privately, privately created digital payment systems. But it's, yes, it's, it's, it's strange to watch. It's, um, like you said, it's, it's a new form of colonialism. So, I mean, like the, when you look at what is happening, many of the companies that are involved in setting up these systems are either tech companies or military security companies from places like France, from places like the UK, from the US. And they're kind of like, you know, they're being brought in. The World Bank is lending them money. The governments in Africa are borrowing the money in order to pay um, these companies and these companies, you know, it's it, it's purely kind of like the, you know the 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 know-how is being brought from outside, and it provides. I would argue it provides these countries like the UK and France an enormous amount of influence over um, African countries um, for the foreseeable future. If this continues, if this progresses. Absolutely. It's it's like it's just this data collecting building towards that digital grid. And oh, my God, it's it, it, I mean, like, it, I would like to mention, I mean, like a couple of things. So, I mean, like I've mentioned the UK, the, Fran the UK and French governments also involved is, is the Norwegian um, government and two <laughs> two foundations. The classic Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is there, <laughs> um, as is the on media network. Um, so those are the, have been the main, those have been the, 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 should we say the people who have provided the catalytic contributions, um, to this world bank program. 
And a couple of months ago, the um, it was very interesting because the um, the New York University School of Law um, kind of like created this, or they published a report into what is happening with the ID for the programs. And it essentially warned that these programs may well be paving a digital road to hell um, because wow. of the way they allow governments to use to surveil populations. And they actually say something that is really interesting, which is um, who actually really benefits from this. I mean, like, because you know, they're saying like the main um beneficiaries are the um the companies that are providing the um, systems and that are being able to access the data so it's it's something that i think that you know when you've got this gives me a little bit of hope when you see organizations like this beginning to raise um to raise the alarm about the the risks posed by by these kinds of programs i think that it gives and there may be a possibility of at least um, pausing the momentum, uh, yeah. if not reversing it. Yeah, I see how cautiously you're phrasing that there, because you don't want to seem like Pollyanna, but that does sound major. And I do, I mean, I, I feel like I see the seeds being planted, and particularly here in the U.S. And in your book, you mentioned that, that America could be the place where that last stand, the, the, the type of country we are, the divided populace we live in, we, we could be the place that, that plants the flag and says, no, you're not going to take our money away. You're not going to put us on this digital grid and switch us to electric cars. And the list goes on. So while we're on the t topic of, of uh, optimism and uh, standing up to this, what could you say? To, well, I guess I'm going to do a two-part question. The first is, do you feel like people are getting it with your book or or are you often being dismissed with the derisive use of the term conspiracy theorist? Mm -hmm. And what is giving you optimism and hope from all you must you must be hearing from a lot more people since the book came out? And where do you feel the um, the, the the movements lie to put a stop to this, which which you know, as you say in the in the title of your book, the end of privacy and personal freedom. There is no there is no greater stand to take. So, what gives you some sense more more hope besides the NYU story um, in that realm? Okay, uh, one thing that gives me a certain amount of hope is the fact that more people who have been um, vaccinated, whether lightly or heavily, whether they've had one or two uh, jabs or three or four or even five, uh, I think beginning to realize that the vaccines themselves do not um, do not do what, what we were told. Yes. They did. They, 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 are, um, they are not as safe as we were told and they're not as effective Effective as we were told, and that is putting it as as kind of like as politely <laughs> as I can. Um, the the fact of the matter is is that we are now uh, we have been through a few months ago the biggest wave of this of this virus, and that was despite the fact that um, the some of the most heavily vaccinated places on the planet, including 
the continent I live in, in Europe, um, we're seeing the highest numbers of cases. Um, I think that I think that that there's no way of really enumerating how how many people's kind of like minds have shifted over the last six to seven months. It is really hard. I mean, just based on my own personal kind of like networks, I would say that probably at least 20 to 30% of the people I know who were vaccinated nice. have had some fairly important seeds sown in their minds. Now, to what extent those seeds are going to kind of like um, actually begin to sprout and to to give um to give way to something you know approaching genuine opposition i do not know um that is that is an area which you know only time will tell and i think we will we will see fairly shortly i mean what is clear is that the vaccine passports have not gone away uh, they they have been consigned to the background um we are i feel like we're in a weird hiatus right now it's like we have been Likewise. We have been, it's almost like we have been in prison. We've had our privileges taken away, which is curious, you know, use of the word lockdown. Um, <laughs> and sometime, I would say, around about February, March, we began to have some of our privileges given back to us um, to the point where kind of like by June, many countries in Europe, for example, were returning to some semblance of normality, at least regarding the virus and the vaccines. I don't think that is going to be a long-lasting uh, situation. That is my personal feeling. Well, yeah, that's a frighteningly accurate comparison there, um, the prison metaphor. We, we, um, we've, we've been, we, we, are, we, we are back in the yard. Yeah. We are playing basketball. We are talking, we're smoking with our friends. It's like the sun is shining. We're getting a bit of vitamin D. And but it, it's not think, freedom, though. It's not no, freedom. No, 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 we no, have no. to keep telling ourselves it's not freedom. It's not, this is not freedom. This is, and the, the vaccine passports themselves, um, they've only been suspended. Um, I think it's very important that people realize that, um, for example, in the European Union, which is, I would argue, the most important jurisdiction on the planet, at least in the West, for the vaccine passport system, because we're one of the first jurisdictions to launch them and because we have gone all in on them or at least our governments have um i mean i think that the fact that the the vaccine passport the green pass was renewed at the end of ja at the end of june um for another year says a lot about what mm. could be coming our way and and messages coming out of the our brussels do seem to suggest that they are going to double down in a big way in autumn so it, it is it is this weird like this weird hiatus so I, I really do strongly recommend people do not kind of rest on their laurels and think that you know the the worst of it is over i i fear that that is not the case i wish it i wish it was oh likewise no i, I really I, do i hear you and and it, it could be a quote unquote return of covid it could be another disease they've been trying to push the monkey pox and and who mm -hmm. knows what other tactic they have up the sleeve up their sleeves yeah. i mean these these folks operate like a bad film e evil genius i mean but they do know how to put this together as when you were laying out how the world bank and so on what they're doing in africa there is there is this 
um, if you detach yourself, there's a brilliance to the method of their plan. And so we can never underestimate them, but we also can't underestimate the vast amount of people. And even if you're, you know, informal poll of 20% of people getting seeds planted, that's, uh, that's a lot of people. And, and if, if the, if the adverse events can just get out there and be believed, I think yes. that that twenty percent is going to explode because yeah, I think um, that 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 is a very good point. That yeah, is a that, really important point. Those yeah. numbers are, are going to just be shocking, um, yeah. except for people who've been looking at them all along. So I, I want to respect your time restraints here. So I'm going to give you this towards the end. Um, first of all, it's so important. I just want to say it again. It's so important what you did with this book in the sense that that we need, like you said, we can't let your guard down. We're just out in the yard getting a little sun, but we're not out of prison. And you need information, a verifiable information to make intelligent and self-loving choices about what you want, how you want to move forward. And, you know, your book does that. Um, what would you say in closing to someone who hears this conversation and says, ah, it sounds like a conspiracy theory. It, it you know, this, this can't, it, it, it's, yeah, it sounds scary, but it could never happen. What would you want to say to someone to emphasize how important this is and how to empower them at the same time to recognize that they can be involved and they can make a difference? Okay, well, the first thing I would say to them, I think this is really important, um, is that the use of the term conspiracy theory is not um, <laughs> is not a good way of... Um, confronting a discussion or an argument. Um, I think that we have, we've taken on this, I mean, like, what does a conspiracy theory mean? A conspiracy theory is anything that, that essentially um, clashes with the version of events that we are fed on a daily basis through the media organizations, which uh, we watch or we read or we listen to um and in our respective countries um i would argue that look if if you're worried about conspiracy theories then i would i would consider what um adam smith um the the grandfather the godfather of the, the OG. Uh, modern economics the original gangster <laughs> of modern economics i mean like he said I mean, we're going back, you know, a long time. I don't know the exact date when he said this, but we're going back well over 150, 200 years. Um, people of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion. But the conversation ends in a conspiracy, that term, against the public or in some contrivance to raise prices. Mm -hmm. so we live in a supposedly capitalist society, but yet, Many of the organizations that, um, should we say, guide policy at a global level are fundamentally the perfect, that they, they, they embody this description hmm. in total exactly. perfection. Um, the World Economic Forum is not just a place where people of the same trade come together, but people of the same trade and the regulators and the governments and the international organizations come together and they talk about how the world should work. So, I mean, like, if you want to talk about conspiracy theories, I would start there. Let's consider, let, let, let's label 
Adam Smith, the original conspiracy theorist. So that wow. is one thing I would say, number one. Um, another thing I would say is, is if you are going to use this term conspiracy theorist, at least confirm what you're saying. So, I mean, like in my book, I think I have something I haven't looked for a long time, but that there are around about 300 footnotes. Um, I have used as much as possible original documentation. And if I've not used original documentation, I have used mainstream media sources. Um, and, and I think that the fact that people are not hearing certain elements of the reality that either we are living today or we will be living tomorrow does not mean that that reality does not exist. Um, and I think that we really need to, to begin to... Um, and, and, and I say this to everyone, whether you are left on the left or the right, particularly on the left, because I would say that many of the people who are particularly allergic to so-called conspiracy theorists tend to be kind of on the so-called left, because the so-called left is kind of like being bastardized over the last 20 years. Um, but but I think that it's it's this need to, to go to the original sources, need to check, confirm what you're reading, make sure that it is... Um, as it is being reported. Um, and, and I also think that, I mean, like the, the actual trends that we are talking about right now, whether it is vaccine passport, whether it is digital identity, whether it is kind of mandating vaccines that are essentially coming straight out of a laboratory and not even getting tested before being put in the arms of little children or even babies. Um, and also definitely central bank digital currencies. These are phenomena, these are trends that are absolutely revolutionizing the world around us. And we can either take part in this revolution, we can either um, have a voice in this revolution, or we can just be bystanders. We can watch it as it takes place around us. And I think in order, the only way we can have any form of active role in the world that is rapidly taking place uh, or rapidly taking shape is by being informed. So wow. first of all, we should kind of like leave behind these kind of what we might call prejudices um, or these, um, you know, we, we should be wary of already having a conclusion in our minds before we um, approach certain information or certain news stories. Well, bravo. I, I wouldn't, I'm not even going to dare to add to that. That is like the perfect ending statement. And I do want to um, say to the listeners, there are at least 25 pages of notes in your book. And it's not a, it, the book itself is what, maybe 200 pages. So you're talking it's about not, every, no, the, the, Yeah, the book itself is about 190, 200 pages. Yeah. So, it, so you talk about verifiable. It, it, that I'm really, really urging people to check the show notes, order the book, and and join the revolution. Don't be don't be a bystander. Be a participant. And a big part of that is self education. And t take Nick's book as a platform and launch from there in whatever direction feels meaningful to you. So I just want to say thank you for taking time to speak with me, and thank you for doing the work that you're doing. It's it's it is essential. Thank you, Mickey. It's been, it's been a pleasure being with you. I've enjoyed this conversation thoroughly. Likewise, very much. I'll be right back with my story of the week right after this word from our sponsor.
Hey, Mickey Z here asking you to become a paid subscriber to Postwoke. This is my Substack where I produce daily content, uh, articles, posts, and podcasts. And some of it is exclusively for paid subscribers. And also paid subscribers are the ones who are able to comment on such posts. So for just $5 a month, less than 17 cents a day, you get access to all of this. And you also are offering essential support for a project that I want to keep going and growing. So I thank you in advance for that. In the meantime, please feel free to peruse the show notes to find a link for the project that I've been running for nearly six years, a one-man mission to help homeless women on the streets of New York City. Also in the show notes, you will find a link to purchase a really cool post-woke t-shirt to let the world know what your favorite podcast is. And one more thing in the show notes is a link to my NFT photography collection in case you're interested in purchasing a non-fungible token. So I thank you for your time and for checking out all those links. And please, please consider becoming a paid subscriber. It makes a huge difference. I thank you in advance and let's get back to the show. Growing up in a blue-collar, working-class environment set the stage for non-stop masculine conditioning in my youth. This, in turn, made me and my friends bizarrely aware of, yet oblivious to, the relentless threat of older males in our lives. We, we rarely, if ever, discussed it. These days, I find myself replaying episodes from my youth and A, marveling at what we casually accepted as normal, and B, being quite grateful and astonished that I'm still around to talk about it all. So one of those stories I'm choosing for this episode because I feel it stands really in stark contrast to all the other material and information shared in this episode, and it has to do with my friends and I hitchhiking to Paramus, New Jersey to spend the day at a long defunct bathing beach called the Old Mill. It was sort of a man-made beach slash swimming pool and we loved it for the extra high diving board. Truth be told, it was an awesome destination for, the, for a bunch of bored, broke, asphalt dwelling punks. Summer vacation had arrived and I was standing around with a bunch of friends with nothing to do. This meant we were too young and too poor to have many options. On this particular day, there were four of us. Me and Tommy, both 14, along with Frank, 17, and a charismatic 16-year-old dude we all called Rat, R-A-T-T. It was mid-morning at the local schoolyard when Rat started talking about the old mill, a place he went with with his family a few years earlier. It wasn't until we were all completely sold on going that Rat added in a key point. The old mill was located in Paramus, New Jersey. We were having this conversation in the Long Island City slash Astoria area of Queens, New York City. He waited, at, waited for us to moan in collective disappointment before suggesting we can hitchhike there. It's easy. I've done it. Old dudes pick up young guys like us all the time. They like having us in the car. None of us remotely questioned this concept. Instead, we each ran home to get our bathing suits and lied to our mothers about going to Astoria Pool. Within 15 minutes, the four of us were standing on Northern Boulevard with a bathing suit and small towel in one hand and the other hand outstretched thumb first. In a matter of minutes, a guy driving an 18-wheeler slowed down and pulled over. We all got in and let Rat do most of the talking. 
I remember worrying that the truck driver seemed ridiculously tired and distracted, so it was a relief when he dropped us off a block or two before the George Washington Bridge, which spans the Hudson River from New York to New Jersey. Back to work, boys, Rat laughed, and out went our thumbs. I saw an older white dude driving a beat-up sedan watching from the other side of the road. He pulled some fancy maneuvers to make it happen, but the next thing I knew, he was parked in front of us. Hey, I began. This guy just... Nobody wanted to hear me, so I was shushed while Rat again did all the talking. The driver carefully eyed all of us, but his gaze remained longest on Tommy. When Rat asked how close he could get us to the old mill, the guy just smiled and said, I'll bring you boys all the way there. What are you waiting for, Rat yelled as he opened the front door. This gent is giving us door-to-door service. Now, the back seat of the car was loaded with box boxes and stuff like that. And so it ended up like this. Tommy sat right next to right next to the very happy driver. It's easier for a smaller guy to fit in the middle, the creep explained. Rat got the window seat in the front. In the back, Frank pushed me in to get squeezed next to the boxes so he could lean against the window and nod off. The driver peeled away from the curb and I looked up to see a sign for the bridge and New Jersey. I started feeling guilty for lying to my mom. So let's just take a second to review what none of us reviewed at the moment. Four teenage boys were squeezed into an old car being driven by a strange man who risked having an accident just to be in position to pick us up. As we headed across state lines, our loved ones thought we were splashing around in the local city pool and would be home in a couple of hours. None of this was on surveillance tape. There were no cameras. Nobody had cell phones and none of us could be tracked. So if our driver had produced a gun and forced us somewhere, it would have taken a long, long time for anyone to ever figure out what happened to us. Remember, no cell phones, no security cameras on every corner and bridge and toll booth. We would be local headline news for a couple of days, and then we'd be a footnote to everyone except our family and friends. Now, back to the drive. Once we were over the bridge and in New Jersey, Frank was already out like a light. I couldn't hear much of the front seat conversation thanks to Rat's open window and a staticky AM radio. When we we eventually got to a red light on a quieter side road, I learned about the plan. It seems Mr. Driver wanted to drop me, Rat, and Frank at the pool. He asked Tommy to ride with him to his house, which he swore was nearby. He needed his quote-unquote muscles to help move something heavy. Mr. Driver promised to pay Tommy and then drive him right back to the old mill when the manual labor was done. Now, none of us ever had money. The promise of cash often lured us into some questionable, even illegal choices. So it's no surprise that Tommy gave an automatic yes to this plan. That's when I noticed Rat got his, his usual impish grin started to vanish. He looked serious and he just nodded his head. A little later, we discovered he was hatching his own plan. We reached the old mill. I shook Frank to wake him and got a smack for it. We both got out and stretched our legs. Rat jumped out and pulled us aside while Mr. Driver chatted up Tommy in the front seat. The whole time, Rat held the passenger door open with his right hand. Listen, Rat whispered, you guys go in. I ain't leaving him alone with this perv. I'll go with them, make sure everything's on the level, and we'll be back here in no time with money for everyone's lunch. 
This was officially the first time during the trip that I accepted the possibility that Mr. Driver was indeed a sexual predator and we may never see Tommy again. I suddenly understood why Rat was holding the car door open while talking to us. We just stared at him, but he shooed us off. Me and Frank walked off to sneak into the bathing beach. We hadn't even gotten into the water before we saw Rat and Tommy also inside and running towards us. This is basically how Rat explained things. I told the perv I was going to since I was bigger and could be more helpful with moving stuff. He freaked the fuck out and tried everything to talk me out of it. He said he couldn't afford to pay us both. I told him he didn't have to pay me. I'd help for free in return for the ride. Dude sat there and thought for a minute and then said, never mind, I'll get someone else to help. Within 30 seconds, we dropped the topic and never talked about it again. We had more important things in our minds, like the high diving board we had just literally risked our lives to experience. Epilogue. After spending way too long at the old mill that summer day, we went right back to hitchhiking to get home. A trucker drove us from the pool to the highway, and then a second trucker took us directly into Manhattan, where we were dropped off at Times Square. Rat sat, ne sat next to both truckers this time. We went down into the subway station during the evening rush hour. Rat held open the wooden door that used to be next to the turnstiles. Four punks strolled in, took the old double R train back to Astoria, and got screamed at by our parents for being late for dinner. I look back now, and I recognize that it's episodes like this that taught me to keep my guard up.